just start then. Thanks everyone for coming to uh, the podcasting session. My name is Benjamin Walker. Uh, I'm Todd Maffin from the CBC in Canada. And I think what we uh, what, what we want to do is um, um, I've got a bit of tape and Ben's got a bit of tape and um, uh, what we want to sort of go over is uh, I, I, I want to cover sort of what podcasters can teach us and um, Ben is going to cover what listeners of podcasts can teach us, how are they consuming it differently and how can those sort of uh, interact with each other. Um, and then Ben is also going to cover um, its role in independent producers. I mean, if you are an independent producer, is this the way you can distribute your content? Obviously it is. Most everyone at this festival is an uh, independent producer. And I, I think for me, the one goal I have is at the end of this 90 minutes, you will all realize that this is an amazing moment for you. And it is a moment to be seized. And I hope that I will, we will have showed you some ways and how you can seize this moment. Awesome. So what I think we'll do is um, we'll we'll do our bits, and then uh, and then I think we've got about twenty minutes each, roughly, or maybe a bit less, and uh, and then we'll just throw the floor open, and we're here to learn from you guys as much as vice versa. So um, once we've finished our bits of tape and whatnot, we can uh, engage in a dialogue. There's lots of issues around it. We're not going to get very technical. Um, no, if, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, as you see here, that uh, so I started my radio program. I have a radio program called The Theory of Everything that is also a podcast, and I started it almost a year ago, and I, this weekend. And then, on October 7th, I was podcasting. So I, I did my very first broadcast on October 3rd, and then by the broadcast number two, on October 6th, podcasting had happened. And at first, it was very difficult. I couldn't understand how the tech works. So I wrote this guy that I found on the internet, uh, Todd, if he would help me how to fix it, how to learn how to do this RSS enclosure. And on, on the 6th, you can see I wrote him on the 6th. And he never wrote me back. <laughs> Sorry. I thought I did. I usually have better email skills than that. But I was able to learn by the 7th, you can see. So it, it really is easy. And there are so many internet sites out there. And I'm, we'll be happy afterwards to um, hook you up with some stuff. But this is not really a technical discussion we're going to have today. And, you know, we're, we're both geeks. So if you want to get into the techie stuff, we're more than happy to he after, is. offline. Ben is too. He just won't tell you. Um, okay, so what I wanted to um, to address was sort of some different styles of of um, some some examples of what podcasters are doing with the medium. I think what what the most exciting part for me is just hearing these new voices experiment with our medium, which has been, when you think about it, a fairly consistent style, sound, feel for a long time. There's sort of a rhythm in public radio, and what these podcasters are doing really are is they don't know what the rules are, so they're breaking them. They don't know they're breaking them. And as a result, many of them, not all, some of, some of the podcasts, I would even venture to say the majority of the amateur podcasts are crap. However, um, there are a number, an increasing number, where they're just breakthrough stars and where they, they get it. And what I mean by it is um, back, how many people were here two years ago? So, okay, cool, a few of you. Um, Dean Olsher, is Dean in the room? No? Okay. Good, because I'm ripping off some of his material. <laughs> um, Dean gave the uh, the final presentation a couple of years ago, and uh, it was one of his favorite things, one of my favorite things thing at the end. Um, he talked about it. And what he meant by it was, you know when you're working on a piece whether or not it's got it. But no one's really been able to articulate what it is. And for me, that that his presentation was, was a... Uh, a life-changing event because he articulated very clearly what it is. And it is just intimacy with your listener. 
Um, so I want to play a bit of tape. It's very short. This was actually from the conference. So you're going to hear two years ago's audience reacting to this. Um, I don't know what the, who the DJ is, but this was Dean's example of intimacy in radio, the feeling that you're just... Because remember, most people who listen to radio listen um, by themselves. It's not like television where it's a family activity or group activity. You're speaking to one person, and very few broadcasters, I think, really, especially when they're getting into it, understand that. I mean, I cringe every time I hear a broadcaster, and sometimes they're seasoned broadcasters, say, hi, everybody. You know, in radio, there is no everybody. It's just you're, you're talking to one person, and, and the people who do that really well um, are people like this guy that Dean played, and also the podcasters. So I'll play some examples of that. But So this is uh, Dean was playing a clip from uh, some DJ, I believe, in New York a number of years ago, who had just, um, he was basically back-selling a song by Robert Palmer. But you can sort of get the idea of the sense of, of this guy's spirit and how sort of close he, you feel to him. It doesn't really matter what he's saying as much as how he's saying it. So, here you go. Uh, this was recorded in Nassau with a local steel drum player named Bill Bonaparte and two kit drummers and a guy playing serrated knife blades. The lyric is self-explanatory, pride being the first deadly sin. Olivia Newton-John's Let's Get Physical was around at the time, and that always amused the hell out of me. Uh, part of the lyric, if you listen closely, is, hey, Olivia Newton-John, what you say? So, uh, Robert Palmer. And bad case of loving you before that Dr. Doctor from 1980. Now, and that's from the album, um, Bad Case of Loving You is from, which album is that from? Hold on a second. Bad Case of Loving You is from Secrets. Okay, so you get the idea. The point was, this, this was a top-rated station. I mean, you know, you don't get that usually from, and this, I believe, is a commercial station. You know, usually you get this sort of 15 degrees high, so the 18 to the 80, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I started in private radio, as you can tell. Um, and so what I think the clip that Dean played a couple of years ago was all about that sense of intimacy, that remembering that you are directly connected to the one person who's listening. And that's where podcasters have picked up on by complete accident, they are embracing that spirit without even realizing it. So I want to play you a couple of examples. Um, one is a, a podcast that hasn't been produced in a little while. I believe they are from Toronto now. They uh, are or were Americans. Um, it's called, oh, I should have written this down, Quirky Nomads. And what she does, you only hear the, the, the woman of the family. Um, what she does is every day she comes home and just records little snippets of her day. 45-second stories two minutes, a minute and a half. The interesting thing is there's no place for this on public radio, right? There's no, we can't have a one-minute show or a six-minute show one day or a two-minute show the next. But I just want you to hear sort of the, the intro and a very brief story that she tells and just how naturally she tells it because it's all com just coming out of her head. the story of a family that said if the Republicans get any worse we're moving to Canada and then they really did I was at the park and this wild five-year-old girl was running around carrying a foam bow and arrow and she was immediately surrounded by ten other kids which I thought was funny since this is the hippie park where uh, me included the parents are very 
anti-violent play. So all the kids started immediately shouting, oh, shoot the arrow at me, no, shoot it at me, no, me. And one of the kids goes, no, no, shoot it at my mom. And then all the other kids just stood there and stared at the one kid. So that's it. That was all there was to that particular story. She had a couple of other short ones in there as well. But what I, what I really like about, about things like that is that they are completely random. Um, she's a good story, storyteller. She's visual, but she's doing it unprompted and just out of her heart. And so there are so many people out there that have these skills innately in them. Now imagine taking that person and doing what we usually do with her. We take her, we tell her to write her story down, probably mistake number one, and we plop her in a booth. And then we, I don't know those of you who were in the um, place, uh, the place session uh, earlier at the Washington Post, uh, Jay Allison was talking about how difficult it is to get people to speak in their own voice. And it's totally true. You know, I mean, you, you, people will tell you the story and then you put a mic in their face and they go, uh, I was at the park. And so these podcasters just seem to be able to do it. Um, this is another one uh, from Alberta. Um, I have added the music just uh, in the interest of journalistic integrity, and it is an overused piece. It's uh, Perpetual Mobile by Penguin Cafe Orchestra, which you've heard a zillion times on This American Life and other shows, so please forgive that. Um, but uh, just have a sense of, of her, her kind of innate ability to storytell. So it was uh, hot as hell over the weekend. It was actually quite nice, sunny and everything, and it wasn't muggy. Dry heat. Yeah, because, you know, it's not, it's not the heat. The humidity. Okay, enough, enough corny jokes. Then yesterday we had a massive thunderstorm. It was beautiful. I love thunderstorms. I always have. When I was growing up, I used to sit uh, by the garage door because I was covered by the balcony. My uncle owned uh, five five apartment building it was called a fiveplex it wasn't really it, it looked like a box but the way it was designed it had this long balcony that stretched the whole width of the house so you could sit in front of the garage door and you'd be like you know pretty covered unless it was windy and then you get a bit of, bit of rain but it was a great place I would sit there and I would watch the thunderstorm and my aunt just was terrified of thunderstorms. She was the kind of woman that would have, you know, crawled under her bed. Anyway, I understand that it is a fear. It is a phobia. There are people who have phobia of loud noises. Yes, I understand she was a young girl during World War II, you know, when they had to, they had to run uh, away from the village and into the fields when the bomber when the bombing aircraft came over her town and dropped bombs and stuff and left craters where her neighbors used to live. But still, it annoyed me that she hated the thunderstorms so much. So this piece could easily be on any public radio station like that. Um, it sounds professionally recorded. She recorded on a cheap computer, a $20 microphone at London Drugs is the store we usually get our stuff from in Canada. And it's, it's just a, an incredibly compelling piece because she's just good at, instinctively, she has it. Um, and Ben and I were talking uh, earlier just sort of as we, were, uh, as we were preparing this about sort of, you know, what makes a good podcast? 
And what we discovered is we have the same opinion, basically, which is that what makes a good podcast is just good radio. The, the one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the first questions that pops up is, you know, what is the difference between a podcast and a radio? And for everyone in this room here, as far as content goes, your skills at creating good radio are the same skills that you can bring to creating good podcasting. I, th I think it's really interesting that you added the music to it because it just makes it a lot more pleasant to listen to. And a podcaster, are, they're, they're catching on the, the tricks with music, but they haven't been to jazz sessions. So <laughs> uh, but you know, I think uh, as far as those rules go, that for creating podcasts <clears throat> versus creating radio, they are the same. Yeah, and, and I mean that the most exciting thing to me that I, that we're seeing come out of this is a whole new generation of, of um, people, young people, old people who are embracing radio in a style that they never did. Kids are listening to to podcasts, what they don't realize is they're listening to the radio. They're just listening to it, it in a different form, you know. Um, radio, you can pause basically. Some of them are actually making it. This is a, one of my favorites. Is a, a little show called Radio Free Calamity, and uh, I think it's out of Halifax, and it's a um, it's a 13-year-old sister and her 9-year-old brother, and uh, it's what, what you might call a couple cast is sort of the term in podcasting. where you, A couple cast is usually a husband and wife, and they, they sort of blather on for 45 minutes every night and podcast it. The Don and Drew Show is a good example of that, if you're familiar with that podcast. Um, anyway, these are two kids who do it, and usually they're fighting, um, as brother and sister will do, and um, there's this one point in, in one of the shows where... Uh, Silent, who's the boy, tells Cruzette, his sister, that she's a whore, and she won't speak to him for the rest of the podcast. But for some reason, it is the most compelling piece of audio <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. Because first the kid is just makes fun, and then he's trying to bring her back into the conversation. And you listen to the dynamics of these two kids in this completely... I mean, they forget the microphone is there, but I just want to play you a 45-second example of, of their stuff. So, at this bike trip, we're going to Ashbridge's Bay, and um, you cannot touch the water anyway. What the hell is with that? The water is extremely polluted in Lake Ontario. No, like, but you, they say you can't put your hand in, like, like... If you put your hand in it, your skin would melt off instantly. No, like, this little <laughs> touch like this, like... Yeah. Like, like what is that going to do? It's just, it's really bad for your skin. It's just terrible. And, like, if you do that, everybody else is going to want to do that. And, you know, you know how kids are. <laughs> yeah, kids. Yeah. When will they learn? <laughs> when will they learn at the end? Um, you know, and it, what's great about these two, they're kind of arts kids. She sings and he plays the piano, and they kind of do it in there. But they are completely oblivious of the fact the microphone is there. And, and you hear that come out in them. Um, another form that, I, that I'm pretty excited about is sound seeing tours. Um, which are people who basically wander around. This is the gadget that I use. Um, mini discs, of course, as you probably know, are, are, are basically not manufactured anymore, by Sony at least. Um, so this is an iRiver, captures, I don't know, 80 hours of audio or something like that. Um, and I carry it around everywhere. And what's, what's interesting is a lot of people are taking devices like this, which cost about $200, U.S., that's about $6,000 Canadian. Um, <laughs> and they're just clipping it onto their shirt while they wander around, and you hear the sounds of it. Um, my favorite example is a, is a podcast called The Catholic Insider. He was one of the original podcasters. He's a Dutch priest, Roman Catholic priest. He was in St. Peter's Square. St. Peter's? The Vatican? Yeah. Thanks, sir. For some reason, I had a mind fart there. Um, 
he was in St. Peter's Square when the uh, when the conclave was happening, when they were waiting for the white smoke to come out. And all he did, did was he clipped a microphone. Now, this is an edited version. In fact, you'll hear a really bad edit of mine in here. Um, it's very short. It's only about three minutes. His entire thing lasts about 45 minutes. It's just kind of him narrating what he sees and where he moves and everything. And you get a real sense that you just wouldn't get from a 45-second uh, report, even from a longer-form documentary, because there's no real structure here. It's just It's just straight order. It's just straight linear. It's now um, 20 minutes to 6 and I'm standing again on St. Peter's Square where everybody is looking at the uh, small chimney that has been the focus of all attention over the last couple of hours. And also uh, quite a few Americans and uh, Canadians that are either here by choice or as a tourist on vacation. I just uh, quickly jumped over a wooden fence to get a bit closer to the place where everything is happening. Many toured, everybody. And again, smoke. People are looking at the color of the smoke and, and it looks white. Is it white or? The crowd definitely thinks it's white. Bianca. Bianca. So this person thinks it's still black smoke. But we don't hear the bells. We don't hear the bells. We need the bells to be sure. And there are bells. But it's a very small bell. <laughs> it's a very small one. Uh-oh. The bells we are hearing are the bells that indicated it's six o'clock, not the jubilant bells that <laughs> confirm the choice of a new pope. And then the bells begin to ring. And we have a pope. The bells are swinging back and forth, the big bell in the middle and the small bells. They're swinging back and forth. And their sound is what we've been waiting for all this time. We have a new pope. Okay, so you get that idea. The, this is why I think, this is also why I'm really excited about podcasting, is that how would we treat this story? We would send a reporter who would do their absolute best to be completely removed from emotion and be completely detached from the scene there. Whereas here's someone who, I mean, this is your classic This American Life model. Here's a person who has something at risk, you know, who's directly involved in the story, and he's just telling you a series of, of things in chronological order. It's the basics of a story, and yet, you know, what would I do as a producer? I would probably go there, and I would do a very nice piece with a bit of sound and you know, there was jubilation in St. Peter's Square today. I mean, I can't help it because I'm not invested in the story. But these podcasters, because they're invested in it, because they have passion for it, as you could hear in his voice, you know, it really, that excitement really comes through. And it's just, it's just, I listen to that like every, every couple of weeks just because it's just kind of cool. Um, I, that's pretty much all I have. I've just got a couple of very short things as examples of, um, um, so sound seeing was one, good storytelling is another that I'm excited by. The other thing that I think is neat is that, um, in radio, we're, we're locked into the 24-hour schedule, so there's no real way for us to program things like, like you heard from the, uh, the woman at the park, you know, the quirky nomads, the couple that moved to Canada. Um, because some days it's two minutes long, and some days she goes on for 20 minutes. And then days will go by where you don't hear from her at all. And there's something kind of magical about just ha picking up your iPod in the morning and not knowing what's going to be in there that, again, radio 
can we probably can deliver, but this is one of the lessons we need to learn. Um, here's one of them that now this person has disappeared off the podcasting planet, but when when it first came out back in the old, old days of podcasting last year, um, no one was quite sure who she was. She didn't have a website. I still think that she hasn't actually been identified. There's rumors that she is actually a, um, a television news personality. But every once in a while on this RSS feed, up would pop up the tap dancing podcaster news. It's only 45 seconds, but you would just randomly in your iPod or your MP3 player or on your computer, you would hear this. Michael Jackson is not guilty said a jury of his peers. Some of whom were so moved by the verdict they shed tears. The real culprit was the mom of the accuser who shook her finger and let her kids sleep with an abuser. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, it goes, unless Michael writes another song, and then at the very end, she just stops and she goes, stay tuned for late-breaking updates. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I'll have to find it for the, the, tomorrow's. Um, so there's the joy in that. You know, there's a guy named, um, I don't even know his name, but it's called Rasterweb, and he does this joke randomly. Once a day, sometimes months will go by, and it's basically he tells a 45-second joke, which is usually bad, followed by someone, and it's always a different voice, off mic, yelling, you suck! <laughs> and and I've come to rely on that as part of my listening schedule. Um, and the final clip is um, a podcast that I produce. At CBC, um, we are podcasting three or four of our shows. Uh, my technology column is one of them. But on the side, I produce two informal uh, hobby ones. Uh, one is uh, one that my wife has about multiple sclerosis. And one that I do, which I've done from uh, fairly early on, is called the How to Do Stuff podcast. And all it is basically is it's um, whenever I feel like it or run into someone who's sort of unique and interesting, I'll just interview them on how to do things. So I was in London uh, for a presentation, and I went to, a, to a, uh, a pub, and I did an interview on how do you pour the perfect Guinness. And it's just I, I sort of treat it as like ordinary, extraordinary wisdom from ordinary people. Um, and what I love about doing it is that I'm completely unrestricted as to when I'm doing it. And there's just something so nice about being able to, to do that in radio where you're not tied to a deadline. I've had companies want to advertise on it, and that would be all very nice, but then they'll expect me to do one a week. And the whole point is it's not to do that. So this is the last clip. I won't play the whole thing because it's five minutes, um, but this is just an example. This turned out to be the most popular how-to-do stuff that I did. You ready? This is the How to Do Stuff podcast. I'm Todd Maffin, and I'm with Laura Gardner. And uh, what do you do for a living? I'm an esthetician. You're going to teach us how to wax someone. Right. And you're going to use me as a uh, guinea pig. Absolutely. And what part of me have we decided <laughs> to wax? We're going to wax Todd's ass. <laughs> So uh, what have we got uh, lined up here? 
have wax. Okay, no, but just what, what like what, describe what this wax is. This is kind of a gooey wax. Oh, it's warm. You heated it up? Yes, I did. Okay, in the microwave? Yes, I did. All right. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a lukewarm. It looks like honey. Anyway, so you get the idea. It's just sort of a. We're not gonna hear your ass get waxed. Oh, all right, all right. Never, uh, never underestimate the power of bolero. Um, it's somewhere around here. Once. You you will actually begin to hear panic start to rise up in my voice, because I'm I'm like literally lying down and I'm suddenly realizing with my bare ass exposed that actually this is going to happen. This suddenly has stopped being a theoretical radio piece. And then remove in sections, and it's a lot faster to do it that way. Wait a minute. So this doesn't all come off at once? No. Oh great. So hold the skin above the area tight in order to get a good thin application of wax. Ow, that's hot. Is it hot? Yeah. Do you want me to just rip and you don't know? Or no, I want to know. Okay, so I what? One, two, three. Okay, and what? I can hear the panic there. Is on the on three. Take a deep breath in, like a <gasps> because that's what you would do anyway. So you might as well do it really good. Okay. So now we're applying the, the strip to the wax. Yeah. Give it a lot of pressure in order to make sure there's good contact between the wax. But also remember, I'll, I'll finish it off here, but remember that she's actually giving really good content. You know, like she's actually providing a fairly useful instruction on how to do this. It's not just straight comedy. And the hair and the strip. <clears throat> then you put pressure underneath. So right now I am, of course, pressing down on your ass. Yeah. Laura's a friend of mine, by the way. I'm going from bottom up, yes, in the opposite direction of hair growth. Okay, one, two, three. Ow! One more. Single most popular thing ever downloaded on my website. My question is, why didn't that air on the radio? Uh, it's a good question, actually. There, probably because there's no forum for it. You know, we could, we would have to create some sort of entity and vessel, or and, you know, and typical public radio treatment would be, you know, it's how to do stuff Tuesdays or something. You know, so. But the beauty of this is, it just sort of pops up wherever it wherever it wants to. Um. I'm going to bring in the listener now. I think that uh, over this past year, watching the podcasting thing explode, you know, there's a lot of experts that have popped onto the stage to, to talk uh, about podcasting. But for me, I've really been fascinated by some of the emails that I've been getting and the listeners that have gotten in contact with me through podcasting. And I called a couple of them up to uh, record a few questions. Um, first of all, this is... Uh, Andrew Grumet, who actually, even though Todd didn't write me back to help me figure out how to uh, uh, fix my RSS feed, Andrew did. So, and then he stayed listening. And uh, uh, what's really interesting is that he listens to a lot of podcasts. It's my daily commute each way. It's you know what I do when I'm washing the dishes, or you know sometimes even brushing my teeth. Uh, you know, any minute I can steal away and. Uh, be sort of consuming more more podcasts as uh, as game. Brushing his teeth. So I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, that's kind of how you would listen to radio. Um, 
and uh, you're, we'll come back to that. But uh, I asked him what kind of podcasts he likes to listen to. Some of the things I find compelling are um, content that I learn, I can learn something from. Uh, if I some of the podcasts are, are you know sort of educational, it's, they take you to a new place that you haven't been, and you learn something. I really like podcasts that have good music. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, promotional of songs or artists. It can be just a really good selection of background music. Um, I like podcasts that seem very genuine, uh, that someone is um, talking about something that's very important to them, even if the production values are low. If, if, if someone has something really interesting to say and it moves them, uh, then it probably will move me. Podcasts that are unusual, uh, that's, that's actually a big one, right? There are a lot of, some of the stuff that interests me are, are things you just wouldn't hear on the radio. Um, and I don't just mean, uh, you know, there's, there's curse words in them, but at the top, you know, the topics are, are things you just aren't going to hear on the radio because they're too far from center. Or so the description he gives there is, I, I think, for any independent producer, or at least as a radio producer like myself, that's kind of the content I would hope to make. And I find it very interesting that uh, someone like Andrew, who, by the way, listens to mostly tech shows, and we're going to... Um, uh, come to another one, listener in a second who listens to mostly as well. I think for the beginning, for the genre of podcasts that kind of took off was technology shows, mostly um, shows about podcasts about technology. But even though we have here a listener of technology shows looking for content that would describe uh, your average great public radio piece, and uh, listen to how he listens as well. I, listen, I like to listen to different things in headphones than I like to listen to in, you know, with speakers out loud. And so if I'm in the kitchen washing the dishes and I want to be listening to a podcast, I'll have my iPod in my pocket and my headphones jammed in my ears. Um, for me, podcasts are, tend to be things I want to listen to with headphones just a little more than, you know, hmm. what I might be playing through the radio. So you have an audience here who likes to listen closely which I think for uh, an independent producer who likes to work with sound or who wants to create an intimate connection with an audience, you actually have a podcast audience that is actually looking for that. So that's, that's another. Uh, and then... And that was also one of Dean Olsher's points as well in, in um, his presentation was um, because people are listening and, it, and they're, you have to remember that your mouth to the microphone is this distance away and that's the way it sounds when it comes out over the air. So there's no point being this close and then speaking as if you're speaking really loudly to everyone because the more intimate a sound, you know, as Ben says, I mean, and more and more people are listening instead of on actual speaker radios on, on headphones. And then I asked him his thoughts on the difference between podcasting and radio, and this is the response I got. And so the, if, if you look at any individual podcast, um, you might not say it's it's all that different from the radio, a radio show, but if you look at the breadth uh, of you know the range of what's going to be available as podcasts, it it will be much broader than what you. And it's true today, right? That's not a future-looking. That's not a forward-looking statement. That's true now. That's one of the most uh, 
ear-popping things for me when I was uh, talking with him, is that we're not talking about something that's coming down the pike. We're talking about right now. We're talking about a field of atomized content that taken together may be actually serving the listener, serving the audience, more so than a traditional radio schedule trying to go after general interests. And I find that, but the, when he says it's today, that's the, it's not something that's coming, so. Another listener that I spoke to is a friend of mine named DC Dennison, and I asked him too what he likes to listen to. It's about that time of night when I usually just kind of log in. So I, I actually have my uh, iTunes open, um, and, uh, and I can tell you what is on it. Sure, let's hear. <clears throat> so starting from the top, it's um, <clears throat> Adam Curry, Daily Source Code, uh, Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything, uh, Distributing the Future, which is uh, a new thing from O'Reilly, uh, Engadget Podcast, The Gilmore Gang, Inside Mac Radio, um, ITC, what's the, um, IT Conversation. Okay, so you realize he listens to a lot of technology, but I asked him again the same question I asked Andrew, what is it that you're really looking for, though? What do you really like to hear, or what do you want to hear? And listen to his response. Did in, did in, did in, did in. Wow. <laughs> I'm interested in programming that is that is ambitious and is kind of produced in that you know the the background music is really interesting and engaging the take on a subject is is maybe coming out of left field it, it's just not something that's going to get sort of constrained by broadcast um Formats. I mean, if somebody combines that sort of individual, independent point of view with some sort of production skills or some sort of um, attitude or sort of creative um, sort of approach, then I think that's, that's really, I think, the interesting thing. I mean, I could see people doing multi-part things or long things and... And you know, I'd be I'd be right there with him. You know, I I mean, I could see if somebody had a six-part podcast on a hundred-yard walk. You know, I would I would get into that. You know, and and so I think that the only thing I flee from are the the sort of corporate diversification um, podcasts. Whereas I'm not interested in any podcast coming from you know, the Wall Street Journal. So I, the reason I like that clip is that you have a guy who just showed you that he's mostly interested in technology. But the way he's describing what he's looking for is, I think, the goals of, a, of any good radio producer. You're trying to create content that's ambitious. You're trying to have a, a fresh subject. And this guy is even willing to go down to follow you down an experimental path. If, you're, if you want to try new things that definitely aren't going to make it to the radio, your six-part radio show about walking down the street just probably doesn't have a place on the airwaves, but not only does it have a place on, in, the, in the podcast sphere, but you'll have an audience out there ready to hear it. Um, and then I want you to listen how DC likes to listen as well. I'm happy to... To, to listen to something for, um, you know, 20 or 30 minutes 
and then just pause it, you know, stop there, and then pick it up on my ride home. I also, I have to admit, I, I listen to podcasts a lot at night, like late at night. It's almost replaced some of my bedtime reading, so sometimes I fall asleep. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm happy, you know, the next morning to just recalibrate and see where I was and, and, and pick it up there. So you see that the listening habits of, of this audience is different than radio. You don't have the ethereal problems anymore, even though that might be, you think, uh, fundamental to radio. In podcasting, you really have an audience that's willing to rewind with you, pause, pick up later, go to sleep to you, rewind, figure out where they left off. It's a really fundamentally giant shift in how people are listening to audio. And I think while we can say that the content, on the content production side, what makes good podcasting is what makes good radio. From the listening side, it really is something different. What struck me, if I can just briefly, is, is, um, is hearing the previous person list off their favorite shows. And just for all of us to remember that listeners are loyal to program brands, not necessarily to station brands. As much as we would all love to think that they're tuned to um, you know, your station or your network, the reality is, and you see this even more in television, uh, people tune, you know, like, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I love to watch Big Brother in the summer. I couldn't tell you what network it's on, but I like to watch that one show. Right? People are loyal to Will and Grace, not despite broadcasters' best efforts, you know, must-see Tuesday is all around, you know, stay tuned to this one network. Well, people don't, and you could hear that in that, you know, a, a lot of those podcasts you listed off are actually part of larger podcast networks, but you don't hear them say, you know, I really trust the brand of XYZ Podcast Network, therefore I'll get anything on it because that sort of, there really is no network brand. So the other um, thing we wanted to get to today, and I'm going to move us a little ahead now, is to the opportunities for independent producers or podcasters for public radio. And I spoke with Jennifer Farrow, who is the head of new media at KCRW, which is one of the stations that really jumped in on this. There's a few around on the network. Uh, WNYC in New York was really an early adopter, KCRW, and uh, a few others. But uh, it was really interesting, like her, the story she shares with me about how they decided to get into podcasting. We had heard this term podcasting, and Ruth Seymour, general manager, didn't even know what it was and just said, we're going to do podcasting. And I remember we were, it was right before this big meeting, the staff meeting, and um, she said, we're going to do podcasting. I'm going to tell the staff. And so she went and told the staff, we're doing podcasting. And everybody's going, wow, that's great. What the heck are you talking about? And they looked to her, and she just looked at me and said, I don't know. Can you explain it? You know, and I thought, I think I can. You know, we really didn't even know what we were doing. But even though they didn't know, they plunged ahead, and they've already learned a few things that are pretty shocking. Well, the best thing about it is the sampling is you have people who said oh i'm never listening to the radio at 2:30 in the afternoon but i would love to hear this program called the business you know let me check it out and so then you know the the tyranny of the radio schedule is is all of a sudden gone and and that's the major response that people have um communicated to us and, and this shift with the schedule changing really is opportunities for people like you in this room for independent producers to find a new way of dealing with the station as she's going to continue. This is probably the best time to be an independent producer. I mean, the situation still remains the same that 
I don't know how you guys are going to get paid for what you do. But in terms of distribution, you no longer have to deal with the crusty old station manager or program director who is like, well, I run 16 hours of classical music a day. I don't have any room for that particular special. What you now have the ability to do is create your own podcast, distribute it, work with um, a local station or whatever, or, or some maybe non-local station to help you promote it. They don't have to, they lose nothing. They don't have to change their schedule. They don't have to absorb anything. Um, they don't have to move anything around. But then they get to kind of advertise enhanced content, you know. Like, say there's, you know, like that Bernstein documentary, which was many hours, you know, eight hours or something. Maybe there's a program director who didn't want to move their schedule around to make room for that. But if you're a classical music station or a music station, you can start promoting that. Go to our website, podcast this amazing program. So, I mean, I, I think that um, it'll become less and less important that This American Life is on, or, or say a, a local-type program or an independent production that's all This American Lifestyle program. It doesn't really matter that it's on 11 o'clock on station XYZ. What matters is that it is available as a podcast or some kind of form of alternative distribution on that website. So now I get to go. That's my local station, WXYZ. I go there. Oh, I'm going to listen to that right now. And it's, it's um, you know, 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. So the time shifting that the audiences <coughs> have made it clear that they want to do for public radio, it means that it's okay to get on the air at... 2 a.m. or 11 p.m. on a Sunday night, which is okay time to be, but uh, it's, uh, you can still connect with the audience of this public radio station entity. And uh, like I said, KCRW is one of the leading stations, but it, it, I think other stations in the network are starting to take notice and follow their lead. So it's an opportunity for independent producers to maybe say, okay, I don't know if you can get this on the air, but maybe you can attach this to your website and promote it on the air. It's a, it's a first step. And then it could, as I think many people think, <coughs> will lead to possibly, if you get a lot of listeners, them re-looking at, well, maybe there is a place for this on the air. And uh, the last, I'd like to play one more uh, person I spoke with. This is Maria Thomas at NPR.org. So you heard uh, Jennifer Farrow say she's still not sure how we're going to get paid for this or make money for this, which is a problem, but uh, it's one I don't, I don't think any of you are unfamiliar with. But uh, Maria Thomas at NPR.org actually is addressing this. They're really looking at how this possibly could change. The physical assets and the tools that are necessary to create a podcast and distribute a podcast, <laughs> frankly, um, don't require an intermediary, mm -hmm. whether it, they don't require an inter intermediary really of any sort, not NPR either. Um, the, it, what we're trying to create at NPR is a actual model that makes it worthwhile for, for partners, whether they be stations or independent producers or other entities like APM, that makes it worthwhile for, for all of us to be in this, right? So about th six weeks ago, I believe, they launched the NPR podcast page, which has been aggregating content, as you see, um, mostly around topics. So you can have all the pieces that were about movies on ATC, day-to-day, -day, morning edition, aggregated <coughs> together in an hour-long movie podcast or the book podcast. It's, it's a really interesting way of organizing content. But right now, they have a few stations that are participating in this and the network itself. But she says that 
uh, this is going to be changing very, very soon, and that there are two opportunities that she sees, NPR.org, the, the mothership network itself, has for independent producers. On a reasonably simple level, to have a podcast from an independent producer included in our directory and, and organized along the lines that the directory is organized, kind of regardless of where that podcast is hosted. That's one opportunity that's relatively simple, and it's just you know, a matter of time before we can um, expand the, the definition of what's in the directory to be more inclusive. Uh, and then the second opportunity is a, a, a little bit more um, substantive in a business sense, meaning that we intend to expand the group of partners that we're working with such that um, for those who wish to join us and actually provide us with the actual audio of the pod, the actual podcast itself, um, so that it's organized in NPR's database, NPR hosts it and and actually pays the bandwidth cost for it. And, and in return, the podcast producer um, gives us the inventory slot that we put at the beginning of the podcast and that we have the opportunity to sell. And if we do sell it, then we share the revenue with all the partners. So that's sort of the model, the, the business side that we're working on. And they actually have a, mo uh, a sponsor already for the one, the series of podcasts that they just launched, which is Audi and... Acura. Is it? Oh, sorry. Acura. <laughs> You're right. Uh, Acura. Well, that's, they're similar. But... Uh, <laughs> They, they start with the same letter. Um, and one of their most popular podcasts is The Story of the Day, which you can find on the website, which is, you can only stream, but they're offering it as a podcast. And I believe that they're getting close to 125,000 downloads a day of that podcast. And this, again, they just launched a few weeks ago. So the idea of like the independent producer <coughs> podcast uh, featured, aggregated on, on NPR.org, is something they are actively looking at, and hopefully this could happen soon. So that's the opportunities I see for in the public radio marketplace, and I think we're going to open this up to... Yeah, yeah, we're at the halfway mark, so um, a couple of starters. I mean, there's lots of issues involved. Rights issues are a big one. Music licensing use, uh, usage in podcasting is perhaps one of the biggest uh uh, recovering bandwidth costs. Uh, what happens is you get an enormous spike when you release it, and then, then pretty well nothing about a week or two later. So, uh, if you're with a station, how have you recovered your costs? Have you gone sponsorship? Have you gone, you know, just let's hear some of that. If you're a, uh, an independent producer, how do you feel about the rights issues? Um, have you been asked to contract in a different way? Whatever. We'll just throw the floor open. Yeah. If you could go to the microphone, actually, so everyone can hear. Yeah. Um, so. The things that you, you've both had to say about um, style and content and how people listen is all really interesting to me and other people here, I'm sure. But the last thing, Benjamin, that you said about distributions when I kind of really woke up. Because as an independent producer, you know, what's really interesting about this podcast idea is how is the big question that we have anyway, is how, as independent producers, do we get listeners? Do we get people to hear our stuff. And the traditional way, there, there are two, two approaches. One is you get um, one of the uh, shows to pick you up, you know, from a feature on ATC to 
a documentary on sound print, and there are all kinds of problems with that, of not getting paid enough, and them deciding your content, or just getting their attention. And then you get all of their listeners, which can be, you know, a lot of people. And the other way is, which I've had a fair amount of experience with, taking your own program and trying to get the stations each to pay attention to you. And that's a huge problem, as everybody knows, of, you know, of getting 100, if you're real successful, or 150 stations to, to pick you up and then get their listeners. So the potential here is to go directly to the listeners. But I still see this problem of getting those listeners' attention. I mean, how do you get them to go to your website? I mean, thousands of them, or hundreds of thousands, hopefully. And I guess then once they do, then they'll get it, get it regularly from you, yeah, you know, whatever's once, there. Once they would subscribe. But how do you get the world out there? When, when, there's so many possibilities out there on the web mm. to come down to you. I think for, in America, for public radio producers, you want to get in this NPR directory that right now is very small and not very inclusive in that they have a few partners from radio stations. Whereas if they are able to open that up and you can get your podcast into that directory, I think you will see that you know, all the listeners, all the viewers that go to NPR.org on a daily basis will be able to discover your content. What? Just like with PRX, once, you, you know, once there are a thousand <coughs> things up there, I mean, I see that problem with PRX too. How does a station, PRX, know to go to your program? Or in this whole list of all the mm -hmm. stuff that's going to be up in NPR, how do they get to your one thing? Well, right now it's very small. They're not at the, uh, and again, there's the cross-promotion opportunities that stations can promote the podcast on the air without having to play the pieces on the air. I mean, it's sort of a catch-22 in a way because um, when we first launched Slash Nerd, which is my technology column, and we did it as a podcast, we did it uh, without any publicity. We did it, we just tried the viral approach, which everyone was talking about, you know, just let it spread in the community. And it did, and a couple hundred people picked it up. But I have to be honest with you, when we plugged it on air, we got it a thousand people. And, uh, and then, you know, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's about half our population. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, we would get an enormous spike every time we plugged it on the air. Um, so it's sort of publicity breeds publicity, and that's unfortunately kind of a catch-22. But I think you're right. And overall, it's also trusting the brand. You know, if you are, if you're consistently relying, uh, you know, reliably producing really good content, you know, people will subscribe to that. I, you know, PRX, PR, the, P, the PRX podcast, if they start to put out stuff that I don't like, I'm going to unsubscribe. In the same sense, people will say, you know, so it's just like any other kind of marketing. In a way, there's not really any sort of high-tech tool to market. You've still kind of you've got to use the same tools. This graph you see right there with the spike from April 2005 is when uh, an ATC story on podcasting, and I wasn't <coughs> in the story, but on the website, they listed some other podcasts that you could go find, and it was pretty amazing. Um, uh, you could see, and that was just from being on the website, which... You know, I what did that uh, eight times the number of, of hits just from from that? <laughs> no, I mean you're right. It, when you're directing people to take their work to NPR and try to get on their site, I mean because you just proved it. But there's a part of me that says, oh God, you know, do we have to go there? I mean, can't there be? I mean, what if everybody in this room just you know got together and started their own distribution place? And I think those things probably even exist. Alternative ones like with PRX or Transom, somebody's AIR, somebody's got to be doing this already for independence. Is that not true? Does anybody know? I mean, can we send people besides to NPR? PRX is doing that. Yeah. 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 So I mean, that's another 
there's got to be other, probably even others. I mean, maybe you're not going to get those million listeners the first day, but the viral effect might happen from that location. And they are also, this is also happening in sort of the, the for-profit community as well, the, some of the longer-term, uh, the non-public radio-type programming, the Don and Drew Show or Adam Curry's, Curry's Daily Source Code. Um, they're sort of forming into little networks of their own. So, you know, you and you sometimes hear this, you know, the, sort of the tail end, you'll hear a little highly produced four-second bit that goes, you know, you're listening to the Tech Podcast Network. Well, you're not listening to a network, but you're, you start to get this sense of this brand. And so, you know, if you can be part of that trusted brand, you're right. I mean, there should, and maybe PRX will develop into that, or maybe some of us here, you know, we'll go out for drinks and decide to start that, but it really has to come up organically. Or maybe Third Coast starts it or something. Or third, yeah. Somebody starts it. But I had a question for you because it sounded like when you were like playing those listeners and they're sort of, it, that was really interesting, but it was just two white guys and you were sort of extrapolating from that into how everybody's listening to podcasts. And no, 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 no. I, I, I think I chose them because they are very into tech podcasts, which mm -hmm. I think for independent producers, they feel, well, why would anyone that listens to eight tech podcasts a day want to hear something that I would make that might be experimental. That's why I chose those two. But what do we know about sort of general population listening habits to podcasts? And I'm curious about that in regard to length, because are people willing to get 45 seconds one day and then an hour the next day because they can't? I mean, do we know this to be true? They're willing to pause? Or is it most podcast listeners, in fact, will only listen for an average of seven minutes? And then if you're not done or interesting by then. And like the priest guy, I mean, you said yourself it was a 45 minute long podcast, but you edited it down to the most brilliant, you know, th you know minute. So, I mean, how, are people really willing to listen to 45 minutes that where like 40, 50% of it is garbage? With and headphones like, on. <laughs> While brushing your and teeth, it all yes. sounds so exhibitionist. Are the best ones really sort of confessional exhibitionist type, sort of like, I've got something you really want to know about me? I think you have some listening to do. <laughs> I, I, I think there's two, two places where that fits in. I mean, one is, I, I don't think people are really truly, I mean, as, aside from that they're generally listening more through headphones, um, I think that the two things are, first, you've got the ability to fast forward and skip, which you don't have on radio. You know, if something sucks on the radio, you're, you kind of got to stick with it until they get to onto a topic you like. Um, so you might have two hours of content, but you will, might only listen to 45 minutes or so. The other equation is I, I think that generally speaking, people will do and will listen to podcasts in pretty much the same manner that they listen to the radio. Uh, and in my head, I always kind of think of the 45-minute commute you know, or the half an hour jog, you know, when would people strap on a, a Walkman, for instance, you know, back in the 80s days of aerobics exercise, you know, people, people have these set times when they're able to listen to the radio. And so, you know, in, on my commute into the CBC building, it's about a 40 minute commute, it's a 20 minute train ride, 20 minute bus ride, and about a 10 minute walk. So, you know, I have about 50 minutes of listening a day, I usually put about an hour and a half in the iPod and skip through some stuff. But I think it's those two things that are helping. I've been told a lot from, my show is a half hour, my podcast radio show, and I've been told by many listeners that have emailed me that that is the perfect length for their commute. So I, I think the, the C word is very interesting, how it figures in here. Um, my name's Eric Newsom. I work at NPR. And uh, just as a little aside before my comment, we have done some looking into who these people are, some surveying, and we found out some really interesting things that demonstrate how early it is in the um, the age of podcasting. The respond, we had several hundred people respond to a survey. 96% of them were male. 75% um, yeah. of them were between 25 and 40. Um, this is obviously the beginning part of the early adapters on this. There's a tremendous amount of potential. And the reason I wanted to come up was to reinforce uh, what Maria said in that clip, that uh, we are very sincere about making this an open space at NPR. Um, 
on November 7th, we're going to release about 14 more podcasts. Two of them will be the first ones that Maria was hinting at. Independent people um, producing things in their living room, which become NPR content. And as we've seen from the, so the results of podcasting so far, that NPR brand name has a lot of power in the space. We've had over 3 million downloads since we started seven weeks ago. Um, so if you are interested in this, I, the reason I came here to this session was because I assume you people have great radio content, which I've heard, and the technical skill to do this. And if you have stuff, please let me know. Um, there's a very short number of us who are making the decisions about how to move into this space. And after the beginning of the year, we want to make this a very open space. So um, if you have things, I'll be here all weekend. Let me know. Yeah, you know, you're asking the same question. I went to an editorial meeting yesterday and got slammed with a lot of the same kind of stuff. If we open it up, how do we know it's f true? How do we know it's not going to get us sued? And, you know, we're going to do our best to try and work these issues out, but we also have a real spirit of we're going to do this. We'll figure it out as we move along. So. Thanks. Thanks awesome. for coming up. Sure. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm Tony Kahn. I produce a podcast called Morning Stories from WGBH, and I think the very day that Ben was uh, doing his very first weekly uh, public radio pro podcast, we were doing public radio's very first podcast <laughs> we always argue as well. So we argue first. about this all the time, but we are, we've all been early to the party, and we've all had a chance over the last year to experience something about what this phenomenon is. And I'm often approached by people who are either in a position to have to make some important strategic decisions about where the institution is going to go with podcasting, as well as by individuals who are looking to get an independent piece of production available maybe through podcasting. And the answer that I think I've become wise enough to give to everybody after a year's worth of experience sort of sitting in the front rows of this is that it is too early to tell anything about what the final shape of this thing is going to be. The only useful analogy is that we're all participants to some extent in the birth of this thing and the earlier you get in on raising the baby, the greater the influence you're going to have as one of the parents. So, and believe me, it is so early days, most of the people that I talk to still have not had their very first experience with a podcast where they find, they know how to get it, they hear it, and they find it rewarding. And that's a huge difference between those who are, uh, are interested in podcasting, those who see it theoretically, and in terms of basically the only models that they have, which is their past experience, and those who actually got it because they heard it and they sense in it something that may be different. Or if it isn't different, that may be exciting in a way that being a producer hasn't been exciting for public radio for a while. It is incredibly disruptive at the same time. We just heard from someone from NPR.org uh, talking about how they welcome everybody who's interested. Well, let me say on behalf of WGBH.org that that is exactly the same appeal that I'm here to make to people because, in a sense, everybody's equal in this space. We're all competitive and we're all partners. Uh, and everybody, as an institution, has so many different voices speaking about what to do or not do with podcasting that it's not a reliable, I think they're the first people who would admit that are the ones who are in the middle of it, it's not a reliable indicator of where to go next as an institution. 
you just don't know. Is a portal, that is, you know, a page where people can go to find your podcast, is that necessarily the best way for people to find you? Well, maybe if you're on their first page, but what if you're listed on the second page? How many people go to the second page? Uh, you know, there are a lot of good podcasts that are listed on the second page by category that aren't listed on the first page at, as being in partnership with NPR. They get the number of hits that they get is much smaller than the, the first. That's just one aspect of it. Is word of mouth better? Our podcast began in October of 2004. We now have, I think, the top number we were getting was something like 280 to 300,000 downloads a month, all by word of mouth. Can I ask, how are you, how are you pay for that? GBH is providing the bandwidth, and now, in fact, the bandwidth... Do you know how much it costs, by any chance? I don't know, okay. but it's a very nominal amount of the regular overhead that they would apply mm. or that it would cost to get a, a broadcast out. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> the curious thing is that in the midst of this brand-new world, we don't even have reliable statistics. We did until the guy who was doing that for us uh, got a better job in, I think it was upstate New York. He's gone. We were at that point sort of in partnership with Apple. Apple isn't giving us useful information. So we no longer know how many people are talking. But we do know that we hear via email from over 70 different countries. So something that as a broadcast reaches 15 to 30,000 people once a week as a podcast is reaching people all over the world. And there are already millions of people who have, who have, who have heard individual shows. And it's the long tail phenomenon. Let's say you're a producer. Well, what you produce isn't going to be heard just once if it's available as a podcast. It will be available not only for constant re-listening, and, and all of our stuff rewards re-listening. We all feel that the stories we have to tell can't really be totally gotten in one listening. So they can be replayed, but also they can be made available on the net for the listener to go and get or recommend to somebody else all the time. So what becomes the way that you become known? That's unclear. My My... I, I'm, I'll end with this, but I think... <laughs> we do have people behind yes, you. Yes, I know. This is real early days. The most important thing about this period in podcasting is that it can be completely different from anything else, and we will only know that if we participate in podcasting. Do a podcast, hear podcasts, see what it means to you, start to find other people with whom you want to collaborate, figure out what your next creative idea is based upon how much fun you're having with this, those will be the ideas that might end up being very different from what anybody has to suggest who's within the institution of broadcasting. But even though it's early, though, I want to make sure that everyone understands that this is still the moment. As Eric just reiterated what Maria said and what Jennifer said and what Tony just said, that people are trying to figure this out right now. I mean, just right, right now. And the quicker you decide that you want to participate in this, you'll find that there may be a way for you to, in fact, do so. And I've just received a bulletin. Apparently, it's uh, they now know exactly where it's going, and it will all become porn. <laughs> just a little update for you. Please. And finally, making what we do less bland. So that's good. <laughs> uh, my name's Shay Shackelford, and, and I've, I've been working the last several months with a documentary podcast called Big Shed, and mostly because I think you guys really do, do such a great job of bringing a lot of the aesthetics of podcasting to light. When I, when I started listening to podcasting, what I heard was akin to but different audio than radio. And that and that we bring so much, because podca podcasters have a, a, with maybe a tech background or no audio background, they're not bringing the same level of sophistication to their editing. And so we have that to offer there. But I think the, le the learning curve goes both ways, that there's 
all those things that they're doing. It's not just that that's, it makes good radio. I mean, they're, they're capturing something that, that we've gotten away from because we're so, because we've become formulaic or we've become tired, whatever it is, it is. And, and so, uh, so I guess I also come with an invitation for folks too, which is not from a radio station and not from a network, but from a, a, other independents who think this is a really good opportunity and that this, that the only way to, to do this is just to participate and see what happens. That this is a way to connect your stories with people you would never maybe have connected with otherwise. This is a chance to distribute and see what happens. There's so many problems, there's so many criticisms. I mean, this is, a, this is not a perfect or beautiful technology at all. It's not even all that revolutionary in some ways. But MP3 downloads from the internet, I agree, is yeah, not revolutionary. Right. We've had them for a few years. Right, but, but something's happening there. And th this is, there are a million problems, but there are so much interesting potential. And so I guess I, I would encourage folks to consider, I mean, there are lots of problems. You could spend all day literally just lining up all the reasons not to do this. No money, no whatever. But I think it, the time is now, and there's no, the only thing stopping you from doing it is doing it. And so I, you know, I hope that folks will continue to. And I guess, uh, but also as a part of that, it is also an invitation to, uh, I, don't, I don't have a radio network, but what I do have is sort of a, a gallery of documentary work for the podcasting world. And if you've got your own documentary podcast, we'd love to tell other people about it too. Become an, I mean, this is try to get every the more we're all competitive, but we're all Maybe involved too. What I might suggest is those people who uh, thank you for that, by the way. Yeah. Um, those people who just in, I fear for our time, we've yeah. only got twenty minutes left. Um, who might want to make who who have the space to sort of what you're suggesting and what a couple of other people have suggested, sort of recruiting for content. I would suggest um, just make yourselves available at the front sure. here, and then those of you who are interested, um, have Adam. Okay, well, sorry, sorry for the pitch, but that's no, fine. Okay. But, uh, but so I guess I have a question for you, which is, what, what is it that you think that radio producers can be learning from podcasters? Mm. What are the lessons they can take away from what they're hearing, things to be thinking about in your, in your own production? Well, I'd I mean, I'd like to hear from everyone. I don't yeah. think this right. is just, yeah, right. for, sure. Um, for sure. So, you know, right. consider that in your comments. I, I think the irony of, of pro podcasting is it really all, it's, it, it's sort of hearkening us back to the early days of radio. I mean, what's, what's compelling about about what I, what I listen to or what I hear in, in those sort of amateur podcasts where the production values aren't really good, but it's all live. You know, they make a mistake, and there's something thrilling about live broadcasts. You know, I, don't, I never watched ER until they did, were going to do a live broadcast of it, and it's only because there's, it's a, so there's a surprise. There's an element of danger. Something might go wrong, and that's exciting at, to me as a listener. And so there's an element of that in a lot of the podcasts where, you know, you'll hear in one episode of uh, Adam Curry's show, uh, one of his uh, like platinum mounted records went crash off of his shelf or something and he just leaves it in because it's just part of life so i mean the irony to me is that in pushing this technology which is very futuristic sounding in fact what we're doing is really trying to i believe incorporate the spirit of a lot of the people in the early early days of radio where it was all live where things really did happen uh before the end of you know uh, before the age of digital media like i learned cutting tape when it literally meant cutting tape um and i think the age of undo has unraveled a great deal of creativity um because you know in the good old days baby when you made that cut you made that cut you know there was no going back and now we can tweak and do everything back and forth almost to a fault i would add in timing i think that's the one aesthetic question that i was hoping someone from the audience would raise but when you have to fill an eight minute and 34 hole or you can make it the piece as long as the piece needs to be. They're immensely aesthetically oh, sure. different 
considerations. And it's, you know, you, you, I think sometimes maybe we're, we've been kidding ourselves into thinking, oh, I, that minute that I had to cut off, it's great. Now it's even better. But <laughs> maybe we just tell that to ourselves because we're actually depressed that we've <laughs> lost that, that minute. But now that you have the opportunity to make <coughs> peace be what a peace needs to be, that's, that's a fascinating aesthetic consideration. Hi, my name is John. Um, I don't really have a title, but um, I have a question. Um, I understand this is a completely free technology that Apple sort of made accessible. It's not a new downloadable MP3. You said not a new idea, but they made it accessible and popular. Apple didn't do it, though. Apple made it popular. Okay. And as it becomes more and more uh, as something you get in your iPod, how married to the iPod, to Apple, is like people like everybody in this room really producing a lot of great material how married to like apple is all of this content i would say not at all i think you can podcast by listening to a podcast on your computer with speakers you can podcast by burning it to a cd and putting it in your cd player in your car it's just the difference is, is you're not stuck at your computer while the real audio stream craps out or the windows media stream craps out you can take the audio off your computer and and take it with you. It's and, not and also, device-centric. Yeah, and and in addition to that, I think the real value is, or one of the other real values is that you don't have to go to the website every week and download it. It just automatically comes to you. Um, but I mean, I pr now this is, you know, nerds, and I count myself among them. I wear it like the badge of honor that it is. Um, always have this debate, and my personal opinion is that the iPod is actually a transitive device. I'm not convinced it'll be around in six or seven years because all of these things are going toward the cell phone. So people will just be carrying it with them. Cell phones already have a network connection, and therefore they're a commerce-enabled device in theory. I think the danger isn't necessarily that Apple will have control of this, that, but that we'll be entering, well, it's danger and opportunity, that we're entering into a pay-per-play era where you can, now, as program producers, that might be attractive to you. You know, five or six years down the line, if, if someone heard about this incredible documentary that got made, and all you have to do is text 0477 to receive it, and it charges you 99 cents, that's great for us as producers, miserable for us as consumers, and maybe another entity will evolve to package it so that, you know, you get 35 bucks a month for unlimited from public radio content or whatever. So, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about Apple because lots of other companies, you'll, there's... um. I'm not supposed to know this, but there's uh, uh, Microsoft will be releasing something within the next month or so that will um, that will try to be like an iTunes killer. So you know, I mean, it's, they'll all be jumping in it. So I don't, I'm not. I don't think it's that big a huge deal. Todd brings up business model there too, and I think we're forgetting something fundamental to public broadcasting is that this is a listener-supported content field. The idea of your listeners to your podcast supporting you is not alien. I, mean, I really believe that public broadcasting has an edge here. Uh, we, we have a model that could transfer. In fact, it would be going to the actual creator. It wouldn't be for the infrastructure. It wouldn't be a relentless pledge drive for, for uh, new something or something. It would, be, it would go to the, to the maker of the content itself. And that hasn't been tried yet, but I... I the listeners would be sending the podcaster through maybe PayPal. There's, I mean, there's many online forms to do that, but the idea of a podcaster, a public radio podcaster, asking his or her listeners to su for support is not a new idea. That is how the system already works. 
In fact, that's already happening in the UK. There is a there is a network where you char- where you get access to. It's basically sort of the equivalent of Clear Channel in the UK. Um, they'll give you access to all of their shows basically across in all the different cities, but you pay a monthly fee. Uh, Thomas, I'm with uh, World Vision Report. Um, I have a question about, um, I guess, the rights issue, which you briefly touched upon, not so much on music uh, rights to have music within pieces, but actually producers' rights. Yeah. If you produce a piece, or for that matter, if you produced a piece five years ago, that because le- I don't want to beat on NPR now specifically, I'm just mentioning it as an example, NPR has <coughs> essentially all their stuff up on their website not yet as a podcast, but you could conceivably, at some point, they could go back and they could put all of All Things Considered for the last 10 years up and available for download for free, and the person who produced an 18-minute documentary for them five years ago is going to get a big fat zero, and I think that, it, that that should be a concern. And again, I'm not mentioning NPR because NPR is the big bad wolf, but this could be anybody. I think they're thinking about these issues, these very issues, though, as... Uh, Eric pointed out earlier, I mean, this is obviously something that will be debated, and for independent producers to participate in that conversation, uh, I think there will be that opportunity. Because, Ben, you have a quite successful podcast yourself. Can you see about that? No. Can no, we no. just repeat for the tape? Um, just the question was: uh, Does Ben make money off his podcast and live off it? No, 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 absolutely not. But and if so, can I borrow twenty bucks? Well. I've I've been thinking about trying the, the the pledge drive podcast to see you know how that would work, but at the same time, I I think for personal reasons I like the business model of having a day job and doing this on my own. That's just the model I choose. I mean, of course, it would be great to uh, live off this, but thanks to podcasting, I've recently started working at WGBH in Boston, uh, making podcasts for the television the PBS show. American experience. So the the day job that I got was from podcasting. But um, as far as trying to make a living from the show, I don't. I don't. I think it may be too early for that now. It is definitely a possibility. <coughs> uh, we have ten minutes left. The mic is free. If you want to engage in the, I, I think the rights issue is is probably one of the largest uh, issues that's that's overwhelming. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in theory, there's nothing to prevent any organization from putting it up there, if and only if you signed those rights away. Um, you know, a network wouldn't be able to if you if you gave them the rights for one year, or and you know check the contracts because it might indeed say broadcast rights only, because they never thought of that there could be anything else. In Canada, we have to license music across three platforms. We have to we're currently licensed through SoCan, which is our version of your ASCAP and BMI. Uh, we license SoCan for one type of rights, another group for another type of rights, and that's so first is for terrestrial broadcast. Another is for uh, internet streaming rights, but what we don't have are any music rights from the rights holders on internet download rights. So all of these right holding, rights holding and you know, grant giving type organizations, or not grant giving rather, uh, rights holding organizations are eyeing this as a l- huge lucrative uh, model, and and I think that's a danger. So um, from the other side, you know, I mean, you're, I think as an independent producer, watch what you sign. You know, if you want to extend to them. Uh, broadcast rights to eternity, but only internet download rights for a year, and beyond that, they pay a step up or they ne- come back and negotiate. Make sure that's in your contract, and I think contracts are going to get a lot more complicated as a result of podcasting. Uh, 
the idea that you can like just say you can have it for a year, you can have it for a week is going to be a huge problem because they're going to want to put it on the website and make it available in, in an archive form and they're not going to slice it up specifically or have any kind of trigger to take it off a week from now or a year from now. So it's going to be a huge bargaining kind of kind of issue because it's going to have to be all or nothing probably, I would think. Well, it's certainly the direction that the companies want it to go in, that's for sure. Um, I'm not convinced that they can't build a system that would take it down after a year. Um, pr you know, you can write software to do anything. I just don't think they want to do that because it's, e it's quite frankly easier for them to. There's, there's a, a large company in, in um, Canada called CanWest Global, which is a, a large media conglomerate, and they've changed their contracts with, uh, with freelance writers uh, for their newspapers to to say to include all rights for here to eternity, and it even includes the phrase and throughout the universe. <laughs> I I kid you not. Go to my iloveradio.org blog and search Cam West Global, and you'll see it. So yeah, they want as much as they can get, and there's going to be what I hope is a productive tension between everyone in this room and everyone on the 30th floor of corporate buildings to to keep that tension. You know what works for both. I'd like to come back to the time issue. I'm very curious as to what radio producers think of the idea of having a story get to be as long as a story needs to be rather than a clock. I, I'd love to hear if anyone, other thoughts on that. Uh, my name's Julia McAvoy with Chicago Matters, and there's uh, the station is saying to us, why don't you get a collection of, you know, the best of Chicago Matters over the last 15 years, and it'll be our first podcast offering, although we're linking to all these other entities right now. So uh, Amy and I are going through all our collection and pulling out these fabulous, fabulous pieces. I have to check those contracts now. <laughs> but um, I, I'm very curious about the time. I mean, uh, because our, our marketing person said, oh, they, they shouldn't be longer than seven minutes. And we're listening to half-hour documentaries. And I'm thinking, well, half an hour seems like a good commute time. So I'm very curious about, I mean, is it as, how, especially if this works that are already completed and done and carefully crafted, do I have the right to just take an excerpt and then say, or will the guy tune in to three different excerpts of that doc that are back-to-back, -back, like 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and 10 minutes over the period of three days or three weeks? I'm not sure I, yeah. how to do this. I think, uh, and I know Tony will have great comments on this because I think it goes exactly to Tony's point, which is that none of us really know yet. You have to, we have to experiment and try all sorts of different models. Todd, thank you for making my point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, I think the general idea of having a podcast be shorter rather than longer seems to be working for most podcasters that I've spoken with because, in a sense, your podcast is being taken on a date to a short uh, experience. It's a jog, it's a morning commute, it's to the bathroom, it's to the doctor's waiting office, it's to whatever. And you'll hear in the emails from people uh, how they hear your show. The relationship between a podcaster and the audience is a little bit more personal. It involves a little bit more of uh, actual an exchange of services than, than a broadcast does because the listener goes and finds you and then takes you down. So th there's a, a certain expenditure of energy already and in, in the piece of their flesh is involved. In it. So you hear from them. And this, I think that's pretty reliable information. But the thing that, that's also true about podcasting is there are no limits for format. And part of it may evolve as a result of a discussion between the producer and his or her community of listeners. Uh, you, you do start to hear things from your users, or whatever you want to call them, that help to shape your material. So until you get involved in that conversation, it may be a little bit premature to say what is the best form for your show on a podcast. But what about time? When you think of making pieces for radio versus making a piece for a, that you know is just going to be on a podcast, 
the length of the piece. Uh, that's that's the aesthetic. Well, what? Yeah, right now, of course, we're coming primarily from broadcasting. So, Morning Stories is broadcast, and there's a limit. It's on Morning Edition. It can't be longer than six minutes and twenty seconds. Uh, but we do know when we get it back to our podcast later that week that we can either make it longer if we choose with some edits that we've dropped, or we can add additional features. Does that make the piece better? Does that, or do you think that makes that it different? Makes it different. Yeah. We have, in fact, the podcast has begun to evolve. It's sort of like a, you know, it's a biological, it's a life form of some kind. So it's, you know, it's like it, it's in a niche where it can suddenly develop an extra arm or an extra three minutes or a, or a, an extra ear where it can hear a listener. And it, you don't really know from one week to the next what that's going to be, but you do know that whatever good ideas you have, you can implement almost immediately. So you can create a product, and if it's not working, one of the nice things about podcasts is you can show your mistakes. You can show your rough edges, and they say, oops, well, we, uh, you know, we should not have done that. We promise we'll never do it again. Next week, we're going to try something different. And uh, your listeners are very happy to be included in that kind of process. And we are actually having pieces on the podcast for Morning Stories that we know we cannot broadcast. And uh, they, uh, so we have that additional freedom as well. I had one program in, uh, two actually, two programs. So I've done 28 in the past year, and I had two that just never made it onto the air because of, uh, well, I, for one, I was, the torture one I did uh, just seemed like I might get in trouble. But, uh, and then another one I did, I felt, which was a kind of an audio version of a grant application I did to the CPB that uh, was just a little more personal. I didn't feel they would be great radio programs, but those are the two that I've gotten the most emails from the podcast listeners that they've said is their favorites. In fact, for the grant application one, uh, one of those listeners who's listened to thousands and thousands of podcasts a day said it was his actually all-time favorite podcast. So, and, that, and that was something that never made it onto the air. And so I think that this issue is something aesthetically you're going to see pressing more and more. And the podcaster has a responsibility to engage that dialogue, too. You know, part of the reason that Morning Stories has been so successful, in my own belief, in, besides the great content, is that Tony Top entails it with an invitation to the listener. You know, please engage in this dialogue with us. You know, we want to hear your opinion. You hear that on radio, but it's somehow different. You know, with a podcast, you hear, you know, if send your thoughts to this email address. But when it's actually the voice of the person doing it saying, you know, listen, I really actually do rely on this. And, and, and you sometimes hear that audio feedback loop. You know, people, you, you sort of riff off of basically their suggestions and it creates this sort of content unto itself. Um, and just on the issue of time also, this is my blog, by the way. Thanks for the plug, Ben. Um, uh, on the issue of time, you know, I mean, I, I think it will come down to whatever the content interests you the most. One of my favorite podcasts is three hours long. But it only comes out once a month, and it is a very, very niche audience. It is for people who enjoy German strategy board games. Now, there's not that many of us in the world, but there's enough that this guy can do one a month for three hours, and I look forward to that monthly. I couldn't do that every, you know, every day, but anyway, it's uh, just before three, so um, thank you very much, and uh, have a good rest of the day.